You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A.com. Well, as uh, we've said, we're returning to uh, Daniel today. Resurrection last week, nightmare this week. Uh, it's, uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel is, uh, is difficult, it's, uh, but important. And we're going to be looking at one of Daniel's night visions uh, today in Daniel chapter 8. Now, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm reading uh, verses 1 through 14 and then 20 through 27. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you. Uh, on the insert. And you can see we're back in the Old Testament with these long readings. Um, I apologize, but there's just no way around them. Okay, Daniel 8, starting at verse 1. This is God's word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I... Uh, 
Let's see, that's, okay, that's verses one through 14. And now we skip down to Gabriel, uh, who is gonna explain this vision to Daniel. We have some divine interpretation here. So starting at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is God's word. Um, I think we need to pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we sympathize with Daniel, so help us to understand this vision. And it's important to us even today. Forewarn us, Father, through this vision so that we might be forearmed. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when Daniel got this vision from God, he didn't understand it. As I said, with that, we all sympathize with him there. He was appalled by it, and it made him sick for several days. I've been praying this week that that's not the effect of this sermon on, on you uh, all. This vision is a little different in that it comes with some divine interpretation, actually, from Gabriel. Uh, and we, uh, reading it, also have the benefit, not just of that divine interpretation, but of historical hindsight. Historical hindsight that Daniel didn't have. Um, so it's pretty clear, actually, when you combine the, interp the divine interpretation with what we know from history, it, this vision actually becomes, at least in broad strokes, quite clear. Uh, I'm not going to go into every detail. There's, of course, always a lot of discussion about the detail. But in broad strokes, the, the, the vision is, is, is pretty straightforward. And let me just, let me give that to you. I'll just sketch it out quickly. And you might be surprised at what, what, uh, what you learn here. Because it, although it's future from Daniel's perspective, actually most of this vision is past, is, is, is in the past from our perspective. Okay. It, it, it's not future. Um, so the, the ram with the two horns, we know uh, that the vision opens up with is the, is the great Medo-Persian Empire, which overtook the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire, at the time he gets this, it's not even around. 
right? We're told he's, he's uh, Daniel is still working in the, with Belshazzar, uh, and you remember Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonian Empire. He was the one who saw the handwriting on the wall. Daniel interpreted it, and that very night, uh, Belshazzar was killed uh, by invading forces of the Medo-Persian Empire when they sacked um, so we see the rise now with this ram of the Medo-Persian Empire and, and it seems invincible, powerful, strong. Nothing can get in its way. Nothing can stop it. That is until, not before too long, a goat shows up, right? A goat with a horn, kind of like a unicorn. Um, and uh, this goat rushes onto the scene so fast that it seems to be flying, right? Its feet aren't touching the ground. Uh, and what does it do? It, it quickly gores and tramples the ram uh, representing the Medo-Persian Empire, kills it, puts it to death. And we're told that this, this uh, goat represents Greece, the empire of Greece, and the, that conspicuous single horn represents its first king. Now, the first king isn't named here, but we know who that was, and it's a famous person in history. That's Alexander the Great. And one of the things that was remarkable about Alexander was the speed at which he worked, uh, which explains the, this, uh, essentially this flying goat. Um, right? Alexander quickly, uh, in, with unbelievable rapidity, uh, conquered the known world so that by his early 30s, he was weeping because there were no worlds left to conquer. Right? But then right at the height of his power, at the right at the height of his strength, right? what happens? Well, the horn gets broken off, right? Alexander dies, not by human hand, uh, under mysterious circumstances where there's a lot of debate among historians as to what killed Alexander the Great, some kind of illness. The latest one I read was uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, um, so that's, so Alexander's now gone. And, but then, it, right, what happens? Four horns now sprout up uh, to... Uh, Place the one horn that was broken off and, and we're told, right, Gabriel tells us that that represents four kingdoms that arise from Alexander's kingdom and that we know from history that's exactly what happened that um, after a period of transition, Alexander's empire was divided into four quadrants each quadrant ruled by one of his former generals now, the focus of this vision turns on one of the, one of the horns of the four, one of the four kingdoms. Uh, and, and that, we know, was the, called the Seleucid kingdom uh, after the general to, to whom it was first given, Seleucus. Uh, and the Seleucid kingdom is the one that's referred to in, in verses 9 through 12 here that grew great toward the glorious land. Yeah, I have the same reaction to Daniel. Uh, the, uh, the, it grew great toward the glorious land. The glorious land is, is Israel. Uh, the Seleucid kingdom uh, expanded in that direction and took over Judea and Jerusalem and ruled over uh, that whole region. Um, 
and the, the little, then we're told that there's a li another little horn grew out of this fourth horn representing the Seleucid kingdom. And this, this little horn was a king that would eventually arise in the Seleucid kingdom. And we know from the description here of what he did and what he's like, that this little horn can only be one king that we know of. Uh, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. Not exactly a household name, um, not a huge figure on the stage of world history, but nevertheless, a huge figure in Israel's history. And if, it's, and if he's big in Israel's history, he's big in our history as, as, as our Christian history, because of course, Israel's history is our history as we're, we're grafted into the, the, the tree of, uh, of Israel. And, and Antiochus Epiphanes is actually huge theologically. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes was among the first in what would become a tragic line, and still is a tragic line, of, of evil leaders who make... make made it his goal to systematically destroy the Jews, uh, to destroy the Jewish religion, uh, and to destroy the Jewish people. Um, you know, we, we read it there. Um, uh, he, he tortured and executed thousands of Jews in Israel. Uh, he looted the temple. Uh, of its uh, uh, worship articles, anything of value he took. Um, he outlawed circumcision. Um, and if you were found to have uh, a, a, a young boy circumcised, uh, that earned bo both the parents and the boy the death penalty. Uh, he stopped daily sacrifices in the temple. Um, and in what came to be known as the abomination of desolation, and, and we know there are actually going to be two because Jesus refers to an abomination of desolation that happens in the future. Uh, but, but this came to be known among the Jews as the abomination of desolation. Anti, Antiochus Epiphanes um, actually engaged in some breathtaking blasphemy. Uh, he, he actually he took a statue of Zeus and put it in the Holy of Holies of the temple. And then he began uh, uh, the, the uh, ritual of sacrificing pigs on the altar of God to this icon of Zeus standing in the Holy of Holies. I mean, it's just unbelievable blasphemy, an unbelievable insult, of course, to the Jewish people who were made to go along with this worship on the pain of death. Uh, so, uh, and what's interesting, wh one of the reasons he added epiphanies to his name is that that's, that sort of means uh, the, the manifestation of God, God manifest, that, that Antiochus believed that, that Zeus had kind of manifested himself in, 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 in his flesh. He, was, he regarded himself as Zeus in the flesh. So this, by, by worshiping and sacrificing pigs to this icon, they were, they were, he was really forcing people to worship him. 
Um, and and not surprising, that's why it says in verse verse 25 that he was great in his own mind, right? We say, right, he's a legend in his own mind. Uh, He was this man of unbelievable brutality, cruelty, uh, evil, and arrogance, okay? Um, And what, by what interesting historical note, uh, the... His brutality and, and these, this, this kind of blasphemy led, not surprisingly, to a revolt of the Jews, uh, and that's called the Maccabean Revolt. And the, the story of that Maccabean Revolt is told in the Jewish books of First and Second Maccabees. That Maccabean Revolt was actually successful in defeating the army of Antiochus Epiphanes when Antiochus was out of the country, um, and they liberated Judea, restored the temple uh, to its rightful state, again, as all is prophesied here, uh, and while he was, and, but that, all that is what, what our Jewish friends celebrate at Hanukkah. It's, it's, it's that victory, uh, that liberation of Israel from uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, and while he was out of the country and that was happening, Antiochus Epiphanes also, by some mysterious illness, again, the, the reports conflict, but it was, he did not die by any human hand as, as it was prophesied here. Uh, some, some sort of mysterious illness, he dies. So there it is. I mean, that's in broad strokes, uh, that's what Daniel sees. And uh, by the way, give you a time frame, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, w- ruled in Israel, uh, ruled the Seleucid kingdom, including Israel, from 175 BC to 164 BC, about 11 years. Uh, give, give, put, put it in, uh, in the time frame. So, this vision isn't talking about the end times as we typically think about the end times, right? When we say end times, we're thinking end times for us, right? The, 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 the end of winding up of human history, the return of God as king and judge and the establishment of his uh, final kingdom. Uh, that's really not what this is about, which is in, it, it, it's about, ultimately it's about this event that happened in 175, around 175 BC in Israel. Which is why a lot of people don't preach Daniel 8. I, I, I was doing a lot of research and, and, and I would find thousands of sermons on Daniel 7, thousands of sermons on Daniel 9, very few on Daniel 8. Interesting. Um, and I think that's because they, they, they think this, well, this is of historical interest, but not really of any relevance to us. And I, and I think that's uh, wrong. Uh, just, this is incredible powerfully relevant to us. Why? Because Antiochus Epiphanes is a prototype. He's just a prototype. Awful prototype, evil, tragic prototype, but a prototype nonetheless of of leaders to come in the future. Some have already come, some are yet to come, and of course the ultimate one to come, the the Antichrist at the end of time. Antiochus Epiphanes is a prototype of of that Antichrist, the the final definitive uh, Antichrist.
Christ. And so if we see him and understand him and, what, and what's happening and how, and how go, that all this fits into uh, history and how God relates to it, uh, we're going to be better prepared to face our future, to face the antichrists that come in our future, perhaps the antichrist. Um, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So we get what this vision really is for us, um, as it was for Daniel. It's news from the outside. And we need news from the outside. We, we tend to think we know more than we do, but our, our, our perspective of reality is pretty limited, right? We're finite creatures. Our understanding of history is partial at best. Our understanding of the present is partial at best. Our understanding of the future is essentially zero. Uh, right? So, it, you know, it's, with that kind of limited perspective, it's helpful, needful, really, to have news from the outside, to get a God's eye view of what's happening. I was, I was recently reading a fascinating account of a Baptist army chaplain in World War II uh, who, was, who was taken prisoner, went, went, uh, was on the Bataan Death March, ended up in one of the notorious POW uh, camps, Japanese prison camps, uh, one, of the, one of those camps that Louis Zamperini had actually been in as well. Um, and he was saying how easy it was for, for soldiers, and it, of course he was a chaplain, so he's going around ministering to all these other POWs and he says they're just dying and they're not dying because they're being shot or because they're being starved to death, although they were starving. He says they were dying for despair, dying for lack of hope. They were just giving up and he said you just watch these guys just you know, curl up in the fetal position and die. Um, and uh, so he was asked, well, you know, what, what was the key? How did you survive? What was the key to your survival? And he goes, you know what it was? He says it was a shortwave radio. He says the, the, the men in our camp built some men, four men, built a shortwave radio out of smuggled components. Components getting smuggled in like one at a time over a long period of time. And they managed to put together a shortwave radio. And, and uh, with that radio, which the Japanese uh, guards never discovered, they, they could tune in and listen to American news, learn about the progress of the war. And of course they would... Um, you know, but even though their personal situations weren't changing, right? They were still POWs. They were still starving. They were still being t tortured and uh, tr treated barbarically. And yet now they had hope, right? Because why? Because they had news from the outside. They had a bigger perspective. They, they, they could get the reports about the American army uh, slowly but gradually progressing, prevailing toward them. Um, and it made, he said, it made total difference, right? Nothing changed in terms of our circumstances, but all of a sudden we had hope, right? We, we, and, and perspective, and, we, and we, we didn't give, we, we, our despair 
lessened and our perseverance rose. Um, and it also allowed them to discern truth from error because they'd be called into these assemblies, all the POWs, and these the Japanese officers would lecture them and, and regale them with stories about great Japanese victories in San Francisco and New York City and Chicago. And, and uh, of course, they're listening to shortwave and they know this is all baloney. Right? We, so, so they were able to discern truth uh, from error. They weren't fooled. Well, that's what we need. That's what I think this vision does for you and for me today. Uh, and so what do we learn from it that will help us, that will change your perspective, give you hope, strength to persevere in, uh, in difficult times uh, and in uncertain times that we're facing in the future. I mean, let me just mention three. Uh, number one principle, expect turbulence. Right? You're all, we're always told, right, when you get on an airplane, uh, please, even though the seatbelt sign is off, please keep, when you're in your seat, please keep your belt fastened because you never know when you know, we're going to hit some turbulence and we want you to be prepared for that. Well, in the same way, we've got to expect turbulence in our lives. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think we do. Um, you know, in much of the West, uh, and, and including our country, there is this naivete, right? There's this over-optimism about human beings, about the human condition, uh, and I, and it's and I, actually, I think that thinking has actually warmed its way into into Christian worldviews, and and it hasn't been helpful. Uh, where we see men and women as as inherently good, and who therefore deserve good things, right? Where we believe that life is more or less, more actually controllable by us that we can control life, that we can you know, get a handle on it. And then, and then finally, that, that we sort of regard our history, you know, we look back on our sad history of warfare and violence and oppression and discrimination and all those things, and we say, oh, that's the exception, not the rule. Well, that kind of naive over-optimism contradicts Daniel's vision, contradicts the biblical worldview, contradicts our, our own historical experience. I, one political scientist I, I, I was reading said, no theory of politics can be credible that assumes that human impulses are naturally benign, peaceable, or reasonable. I mean, that, there's a, that's a scholar, you know, political scientist saying, you know, po politics has got to be, you know, sufficiently real to understand that people aren't just naturally benign, peaceable, and reasonable. Christians would say, absolutely. That's consistent with the, the, our, our biblical worldview. You know, when you think about it, it's, it's, Daniel didn't know when he's looking at that vision, but he sees the ram and the goat, right? That... That encompasses several hundred years uh, of history. 
uh, right? The rise, the, the, the dealing with the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, the rise and fall of Alexander the Great, the rise and fall of, 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 uh, of Greece, the rise and fall of Antiochus Epiphanes. Hundreds of years there. Um, and those years are absolutely full of conflict, hardship, violence, revolution, war, upheaval, suffering. That's Daniel's world, but it's our world too. This is where you and I live as followers of Jesus Christ because, as the Bible says, we are living in a world where people, because of sin, have largely written God off. And when, when, you, when you try to do life without God, peace and reason go out the window. So, Principle number one, be realistic about where you live, about where you work, expect turbulence. Jesus said it, in this world you will have turbulence. I'm, tribulation, same thing. Second principle, and I'm quoting uh, uh, an Old Testament scholar who was writing about Daniel uh, and says that this is one of the key messages that key principles that the whole book of Daniel communicates and that is that the horror of human evil is especially concentrated in the state the horror of human evil is especially concentrated not uniquely especially concentrated in the state you know Daniel's visions are primarily about kingdoms and kings. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we don't face evil from individuals. It doesn't mean we don't face uh, evil in some sense from impersonal sources like earthquakes or tidal waves. Uh, and it certainly it doesn't mean that, that everything a state does is evil. That's not true either, right? State is ordained by God um, uh, for our good. Um, what it does mean is that human power is uniquely concentrated there. Human evil is uniquely concentrated there because the it's the state that uniquely has the power to bring individuals together, right? To combine our evil and to and to actually actualize our our collective desires because the state has military power economic power taxation power legislative power right and the bible is that really has that narrative all the way through it. It's con the Bible is consistent that this is where human, power, human evil is concentrated in the state, starting all the way back with Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, right? Essentially a, a, a government project where human beings came together in opposition to God. And then you have the, these repeated warnings of the prophets like Daniel, and then way at the end, uh, at the, to the vision of the visions that John received and recorded in the last book, the book of Revelation, which relies heavily on the book of Daniel. Um, and, and Revelation is very clear that what, we're, what you and I are gonna face in our future 
is, is evil concentrated in two places. The state and false religion. Right? Evil and human evil, human power is gonna be, it's just gonna be arrayed against God and us as God's people is gonna be political power and the power of false religion. Um, Antiochus Epiphany sort of combined both, didn't he? He was, he had a lot of political power, but he also sort of melded that with, with religion. And, 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 and you had this sort of state religion that worshiped him, in essence, and seeing that kind of thing in North Korea as one example, as you sort of see that developing uh, in North Korea. And, and it, it seems like the ultimate antichrist that is in our future is gonna be a potent mix of both those things, of, of, of political power and uh, false religion. Just, you know, think about the 20th century and the 21st century. Just, you know, that, just a thin slice of history. Where have we seen human evil uh, really concentrated. Well, I mean, you can, you can you know, name the, the, it's the hall of shame, right? Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, Ayatollah Allah Khamenei, uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, John made it clear, the apostle John, uh, in his first letter, not the gospel, but First John. John's the one that uses the term antichrist. And, and, and he clearly is looking forward to an antichrist, right? Sort of the definitive antichrist. But, he's, but he confirms that he, he, even now, he says, many antichrists have come. And he writes that the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard was coming, now is in the world already. So that's why I said Antiochus Epiphanes is, is a prototype of, of leaders to come. Leaders that have come, leaders that are yet to come, uh, who are manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. And that'll all culminate in one Antichrist, but boy, we're, we're, you know, we're facing it now, right now. Um, last thought before we move on to the third and the last principle um, on this point, this principle that human evil is especially concentrated in the state, it's, it's not by accident that when God gives these visions to Daniel, that, that, the, that kingdoms and kings are represented by beasts and animals, right? Could have been a lot of things, but kingdoms and kings are represented by beasts and animals, right? Then the, the, I think the message is clear that without God, if you're gonna stand in opposition to God, uh, then kingdoms and kings become bestial, right? They become animalistic, uh, brutish, unthinking, reactive, irrational. It's how states apart from God or in opposition to God act, right? Can you make sense of the evil that's going down in the Ukraine? You know, why that's happening? You know, what, and, and of course it's not just Ukraine. But the, the reason why we're struggling as we look at that 
and we're frustrated is that because it's, this is sin-driven and sin is fundamentally irrational. Russia's being bestial, animalistic, right? It's one of the telltale symptoms that when something spiritual, that something spiritual is happening, that, that people are being influenced by uh, spiritual forces, right? And remember, Paul continually reminds us that our ultimate enemies are those spiritual forces behind our human enemies. It, it, you know, when otherwise intelligent people start acting like an animal, hatefully, brutally, instinctively, irrationally. And that's what we see. Um, Augustine, the great Augustine, right? North African bishop uh, in his book, The City of God, um, had, had a quote in there, and I'm just paraphrasing, but he basically said, without God, and without justice, governments are, are merely large-scale large gangsterism. Yeah. Now that's, so there you go. <laughs> now, you know, happy, happy Sunday. Uh, well, we haven't gotten to the third one. I know this sounds frightening. It sounds depressing. Um, sounds... Um, Perhaps hopeless, but it isn't because uh, we've got to, it, it all, this all leads to our third and final principle that comes from this vision uh, and, it, and it's this, evil will have its day, but God has the final say. I didn't make that up. I found it somewhere. I didn't footnote it because I couldn't find out where, find where I found it. But uh, evil will have its day, but God has the final say. Um, so, if that's true, and it is, then Christians don't be fooled by appearances. I think too many of us have been, right? This whole vision is a lesson in don't be fooled by appearance. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, represented by the ram, right, looked absolutely untouchable, invincible, you know, who was going to ever stop it? Uh, and yet, there goes, you know, here comes Alexander the Great. Here comes Greece. Here comes Antiochus Epiphanes. But, the, but what all happens to all of them? They all come crashing down, right? They aren't as strong. They aren't as permanent as they appear. Um, none of them. Uh, it's a reminder, friends, that God's judgment on, on those people and nations that oppose him uh, is certain, right? It's going to happen. Um, so don't ever believe that your fate, right, your destiny, uh, especially as a Christian, is somehow inextricably linked to the fate of, of a country, it's, you know, uh, it, it, some specific political power. Uh, it's not. I mean, you, you are children of the king, right? You're citizens of the kingdom of God. Your fate is, is linked to the Lord and it's linked to his kingdom. No other. Uh, 
that's, you know, I've already talked about Augustine and the city of God. He wrote that book uh, largely in response to uh, panic. Panic by Christians and panic by pagans because of the sacking of Rome by the Goths in 410 AD. It was the first time Rome had been breached and, and sacked. Now, it, it didn't, Rome wasn't destroyed. The government continued on for, for some time, but, but the damage had been done. And, 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 and both pagans and Christians were, were absolutely panicked because this was unthinkable. You know, what, what's, the, they couldn't imagine the world without Rome. You know, how are we going to exist? How, Christians were saying, how can we exist safely? How can the church exist safely in a world without Rome? They should have known better. We should know better because Christians are thinking the same way now, right? That, that they'd forgotten that no state, no empire, no matter how big or impressive, can, will guarantee, can guarantee your external or internal safety or well-being. Can't. Every state is temporary and will ultimately disappear, right? The only kingdom that's standing in the end is the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And your citizens uh, in, in that kingdom, that's where your ultimate trust has to be placed. Now, am I saying then throw in the towel? Right? Then just don't pay attention to, to the headlines, to the current events, don't get involved. No! What did Daniel do after he got sick? Said he got up and went about the king's business. I mean, there's... You know, how many stories have you heard? Boy, I heard a lot of them. I saw a lot of them back in the 70s when, you know, end times craze was, was running hot, right? And I, and, and I knew people that, that uh, quit college, quit their jobs, uh, stopped working on their marriages. Why? Because none of that mattered, right? God's coming back. You know, Daniel would, would, would rebuke them, right? Daniel saw all this. He was frightened by it, scared by it, confused by it. He, he, could, he knew that obviously the, the, this vision was, gonna, was telling about a lot of death and, and sadness in the future. Uh, so what's he gonna do? He's gonna go up and he's gonna serve the king of Babylon. He's gonna get up and go about his job even though he knows now that the king of Babylon is going to be deposed by a new empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's, no, it's undoubtedly this vision that gave Daniel the courage a couple of years later when, when Belshazzar calls him in to read the handwriting on the wall to be so bold as to, in speaking to Belshazzar because he, he, you know, he had news from the outside. Um, so... Uh, you know, so we engage. Go about the work that God has given you. Parents, go about the work in your office, in your homes. Go about the work of engaging in politics and voting and, 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 and all of that, right? This is what we do. 
but now with hope and perspective. Um, another reason not to be fooled by appearances is that God, is that God limits, God, God, remember what this vision teaches us, is that God defines the limits of evil. Right, evil operates by God's permission, only by God's permission, and only within his bounds, right? Uh, it operates on his timetable. And when God withdraws his enabling power, withdraws his permission, or when his defined limits have been reached, then evil is done, done. Right? Vanquished, judged. He gave Antiochus Epiphanes 2,300 evenings and mornings. You can't believe the amount of ink spilled. And what does that mean? You know, is it six and a half years or is it three and a half, depending on how you interpret the all kinds of things. It's not the point. The point is, God's defined its limits. And when he reached his limits, boom, done. Right? Um, God's people are restored, the sanctuary is restored to its rightful state. So look, it's going to look like um, evil's getting away with things. It's going to look like God doesn't care, that he's not there, that he's, not, uh, that he's out of control. But everything that's happening is being defined by and within the boundaries of God's. God's sovereign will. Okay? Huge, huge thing to remember, encouragement. But, you say, and I'll close with this. That's fine, you know, Ted, theoretically. But what if, you know, what happens kills you? In what sense, then, can you, can you, I mean, hasn't evil won then? Right? If, if uh, you know, if, I'm, if I die uh, at, the, at the hands of evildoers, uh, hasn't, hasn't evil really triumphed uh, over the good, at least in my case, right? And that's a real, that's a good question. It's a real question because the, this vision makes clear. God allowed Antiochus Epiphanes to act. He allowed him to prosper and he allowed him to destroy many mighty men and people who were saints. His people, right? So you say, well, then didn't evil really win with respect at least to those saints? Well, let me answer that by reminding you here in closing that the ultimate venue where, where evil appeared to triumph over good was where? The cross, right? The cross. The cross of Jesus. When evil men and the spiritual forces that were working behind, operating and working behind them and influencing them, when those evil men and those forces conspired to kill and actually did kill the Son of God. That was the supreme act uh, of evil. But it happened, says Peter, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, all that happened by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Really? Evil triumphed at the cross in the sense of killing the Son of God, but that was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. For what purpose? Right? To bring about the good, right? In order to bring about the forgiveness of sins and the defeat of death for God's people. 
We wouldn't, have ha- we wouldn't have it otherwise. So for you and for me, united to Jesus by our faith, we know, right? We know now that our true end, our true end lies beyond this life. We know that it's good to be alive here. Right, Bob? You who just said amen, there you are. It's good to see you sitting there. Um, It's good to be alive. It's good to promote life. Uh, And we do as Christians. Uh, And it's good to, you know, we do that in recognition of the fact that the Lord has work for us to do here. But look, God in his sovereignty is going to call us home at some point. He's going, to, he's going to ordain that we die. And that day is not the triumph of evil. And it's not the end of your life. It's, what did Paul say? It's gain. Okay. So, if, if in God's providence, he allows evil to prosper for a time, and it seems to me that the prophecies are true that that's going to happen in such a way that, that people, even his people, are going to be killed, we need to reject the unbelieving world's conclusion because the unbelieving world's conclusions are based on appearance and they're based on living by sight, not by faith. Yet they're going to say evil has triumphed. They're going to say we are losers. They're going to say God isn't real. God doesn't care. Your religion is futile. No, my friends, evil has its day, but God has the final say. And his best and last word is the crucified and risen Jesus. Look at him. That's your destiny. That's your future. So, from this vision, I will urge you, be strong. Be strong in the face of evil. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Nothing nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the power, from the love of God, uh, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, Daniel 8, for even the good news that comes out of such a horror as Antiochus Epiphanes, who is uh, just a, you know, just a picture of all the chain of horrors that we've seen all through history, especially in our last, the last century, and now coming into this century, so much evil, Father, so much of the spirit of Antichrist. Help us, Father, to trust in you, and to engage meaningfully, to not fear, but to have faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.